It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast, city to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Monday morning. Welcome in to the Ryan Hickey Show right here with you. Where else? The Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We are with you on this Monday morning for the next two hours as we go until 11 a.m. Eastern. And my goodness gracious, what a chaotic, crazy, fun, unexpected weekend we did have. College football craziness, NFL craziness. We have... My goodness, a lot to get into here for the next two hours. So let's do so. Chargers, are they Super Bowl contenders? Forget just playoff contenders. Are they one of the best teams in all of the NFL? We have quick hits for you as we do every single Monday. College football, Alabama loses. Penn State loses. BYU loses. Three top 10 teams do go down. We'll hit on specifically Alabama and Penn State. What does this loss mean for them? We got a lot to get into here, so let's do so. We are coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. And whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners, make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. We got to start with the last game in the NFL we saw, Sunday Night Football, Bills and Chiefs. Buffalo goes in, unexpected win in my opinion, as they go in Arrowhead and win 38-20. to 38-20. Chiefs get absolutely blown out. By far the worst performance of Patrick Holmes' career. The worst loss for the Chiefs. I mean, since what, 2017, 2016? It's been a while. But I want to kind of hit on this game from both sides of the spectrum here. Both from the Bills, how impressed I was, but also with the Chiefs. Because I think we all got to take a deep breath. We all got to relax here. And maybe step away from the ledge. There's a lot of panic. There's an, a lot of overreaction when it comes to Kansas City. And I think we got to relax. We got to calm down because it is overblown and too dramatic. So let's start at least with a positive coming from Buffalo. Because for me, in this game, they got a win they absolutely needed to have. So now you beat the Chiefs in Arrowhead. So for me, your confidence grows exponentially. Now, going forward, and especially with the way they're able to handle Kansas City both on the offensive end and the defensive end, this is no hyperbole. This is a massive win for Buffalo. This is one of the biggest wins in Josh Allen's career. I get it's week five. I get they just, you know, I got the, they won two playoff games last year. They've been to the AFC title game. This is one of the biggest wins of Josh Allen's career. Because for me, I said it a few weeks ago when the Ravens hosted the Chiefs week two. Going into it, I thought this was a massive game for Baltimore. They put a lot of pressure on themselves to win. They've known kind of the history of how Patrick Holmes and the Chiefs have just really owned that rivalry between the Ravens and the Chiefs since Lamar's come into the NFL. And to me, this was an important game for Baltimore to kind of get the monkey off their back, if they will, kind of slay the dragon and going forward, use that confidence to be like, you know what, we can beat the Chiefs, we can beat anyone. They did that. They got the win back in week two. I thought the same here was similar for the Bills. 
Now, they've only played twice. Both times were last year. They both, you know, they lost both times. And Josh Allen, in both of those games, week six, I believe it was, at home on that wacky Monday COVID pushback game where it was like a 5 o'clock local kick in Buffalo. And then in the AFC title game at the end of the season, we saw the Bills really play some of their worst football combined in both games, lost both games. So I really did think coming into Sunday night, this was a big and massive important game for Buffalo because, again, you kind of, for me, is you have to be able to beat the champs in order to truly think mentality-wise, going to the playoffs, you could beat anyone. Not that they couldn't beat the Chiefs in the postseason, but I do think it's a lot harder if you go in there kind of knowing in the back of your head that this Chiefs team has owned you so far every time you played them. So you get a massive win last night on the road. Playing both well offensively and defensively for me. That is going to carry so much weight going forward here. To assure, it's week five. There's still a long way to go as we know. But now this win for me is one of those wins where you can look back on when the postseason comes around and said, oh yeah, we beat the Chiefs week five. We blew them out. We can literally play with anyone. And I think, although it's small, I think that mentality, I think that confidence will really kind of pay off big time in the playoffs. That's why, for me, this win was so important for Buffalo yesterday. And Josh Allen, again, both games they played against the Chiefs last year, he had some of his worst performances. In, in an MVP season, you know, MVP-like season he had last year, the best year of his career, two of his worst games of the season were both against Kansas City. And he was able to flip that script last night. He had just 15 completions in the game yesterday, but threw for 315 yards and three touchdowns. So, again, it wasn't like he was completing a ton of passes. But when he was, they were really making up for it. Pushed the ball down the field a ton. Made a few gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous throws. And, you know, for those of you who listen to the show frequently, or at least on a decent amount, first of all, we thank you for doing so. But also, you know, I am, I don't want to say I'm not a Josh Allen fan. I guess I'm just a little more skeptical about Josh Allen. A little more hesitant to fully jump on the bandwagon, let's say, than other quarterbacks. But he, last night, to me, kind of showed all the believers, all of the fans of Buffalo that think that you know this team can be a legitimate Super Bowl contender. He had a game last night where he showed re- the reasons why you believe. That was incredible, both with his arm. Again, a few of these throws on the run, fitting him in a tight windows, throwing the ball deep, accurate, on time, making great decisions for the most part. And then also, yeah, using his legs when he had to, 59, ca- 59 yards, 11 carries. Four total touchdowns against a brutal Chiefs defense. Now look, I I get the Chiefs defense is one of the worst we've seen in Kansas City and really one of the worst in the NFL we've seen in a while. But I will say, even last year, going back to both of those games, the Chiefs defense last year wasn't really that good. They were okay. They weren't as bad as they are now. But even still, Josh Allen struggled in both of those games last year against an okay Chiefs defense. So even though this Chiefs defense is... One of the worst. I mean, they could give up points maybe to me if I'm on the field. That's how bad they are. That's how much they're struggling right now, especially in the secondary. But still, for me, it's important that Josh Allen played as well as they did. I'm not going to kind of water it down or try to take anything away from him just because the Chiefs defense stinks right now. Because, again, they weren't very good last year, and he still struggled. Big confidence boost for Josh Allen. And going forward on the other side, this was, I think, even a bigger confidence boost, even a more impressive performance by the Chiefs' defense, or, or the Bills' defense, how they were able to limit the Chiefs' offense so much. Like we kind of talked about it before. 
This was Patrick Holmes' worst game of his career. And that's saying something because we don't really say that ever. Even when he has a, a quote-unquote bad game, it's what, 250 yards, maybe one touchdown? Chiefs are still putting up, you know, 30, 35 points. To hold Kansas City, relatively healthy Kansas City, mind you, right? Clyde edwards Lurie gets hurt during the game. But really, outside of that, they still had Travis Kelsey. They still had Tyreek Hill. They still had Patrick Holmes. This offensive line was out there fully healthy. Still were just able to hold them to just 20 points. And even though Patrick Holmes, statistically, stats aren't awful, right? 272 yards, two touchdowns, also had two interceptions and a fumble. But even though he threw for 272, there were so many pass attempts that he wasn't even able to push the ball down the field. He was averaging just five yards per pass attempt, which for Patrick Holmes is super low. That's kind of what Big Ben is averaging. So think about that. If you, this year, watch Ben Roethlisberger and the Steelers offense, and we'll get to them a little bit later on in the show. But you know that's check down city. That's underneath. That's behind the line of scrimmage. Big Ben is one of the lowest um, yards per attempt in the NFL, and it's just around five or six. So Patrick Holmes is right there yesterday, at least, in that same area, in part because the Bills defense did a tremendous job taking Tyreek Hill away deep. Still getting pressure on Patrick Holmes, just four or five rushers. And never letting Hill, Kelsey, kill him for 20, 30, 40-yard chunks at a time. And you had Patrick Holmes being your leading rusher. That's a great thing for the Bills defense. That is exactly what you want. To make the two biggest weapons non-factors. To have Patrick Holmes use his legs and be more dangerous on the ground than he is in the air. That's a win. I mean, again, they held him just 20 points. The lowest since week 16 of the Falcons last year. Which, again, is not that long if you don't count the Super Bowl, in which they were kind of hurt, and Tampa got after him. But this offense really was stuck in first gear the entire time. So now you come out of this Buffalo's perspective with a massive win for their confidence. Both sides of the ball look great. And now you have a big-time shot going forward here to have home field advantage throughout the playoffs, which, again, makes your road to the Super Bowl that much easier. So for the Bills, massive win. I thought they needed this coming in, and they absolutely got it. But on the flip side here, I think we really got to all take a deep breath. A lot of people got to calm down because the Chiefs are going to be fine. I'm not concerned because guess what? As long as Patrick Holmes is still healthy and quarterback, as long as Andy Reid is still the head coach, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey is still healthy, they're going to figure it out on offense. They're going to figure it out as a team. I get they're two and three. I get they've had some key losses to the Ravens, to the Bills, to the Chargers. I mean, we're in week five here. We still have so much time to go. Still have 12 games left. I'm not panicking. This Chiefs team, I think, will absolutely be figuring it out come playoff time here. And the narrative then will be a lot different than it is now. So let's get this. It's been a very short time, right? Almost since 2018, so a handful of years. But when has Patrick Holmes and Andy Reid not figured it out in their short time together? The answer is never. Maybe the Super Bowl. Okay, fine. That's about it. I absolutely have faith in this team that they will turn it around and be legitimate Super Bowl contenders come playoff time compared to where they are right now, which looks like a borderline playoff team. But I mean, the tweets I was getting, even this morning, I'm looking on Twitter. Two people tweeted me, 
I can't believe one person's kicking themselves for not betting the Chiefs to miss the playoffs. They were great odds, and I can't believe I didn't do that. Another person's, you really think the Chiefs are going to make the playoffs? Think about what we're talking about here. Yes, the Chiefs are 2-3. and three. I get it. The fact that we're even questioning whether this team is a playoff team kind of shows we got to pump the brakes here. We got to pump the brakes. I get Kansas City's defense right now stinks. But guess what? That's been the case basically the entirety of Patrick Holmes' career. This year, they're a little bit worse than maybe in past, in past years? Absolutely. Second worst team currently right now in 2020 in terms of total defense. They're allowing the most points per game in all the NFL. But guess what? This is not the first time this defense has been pretty bad. Go back to 2019, the year they won the Super Bowl. Do you remember the first half of the season that year? They were god-awful defensively. They were, you know, borderline historically bad on that side of the football. But guess what? When you have Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid and Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey and an offensive line that can block, you don't have to be the 1985 Bears defense to give yourself a shot here. You just basically got to be mediocre. Even below average is fine. That's all you need to be. That's what they were in 2019. They bounced back and, again, just became mediocre. Instead of top you know, or bottom three, you become bottom third of the NFL. That's it. And you have a legitimate chance to win. And guess what? It's not that far or it's not that high of a bar to clear. If we're asking right now the Kansas City Chiefs defense in 2021 to just be below average, just be, let's say, 20th out of 32, 22 out of 32, this Chiefs team is super dangerous. Because let's not forget on the other end, I get it was a bad performance last night. Scoring just 20 points. This offense, though, has been really good outside of last night this entire season. The offensive line, five new starters this year compared to last year. They've come together nicely. They have played really well so far. This is a team, again, heading to last night, was third in the NFL in total offense, was the third highest scoring team in the NFL. And they've been running the ball with success, again, outside of last night. So, sure, part of that is the Bills defense doing a really good job. Part of that is just the Chiefs, I think, having a bad night. I think that was one of those nights last night where they just had a really bad game. It happens. We've seen every great quarterback, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, you name any all-time quarterback. They all have bad games. For me, that's what I'm chalking last night up to for the Chiefs. A bad game. Defense thinks, and the offense, if they're not on point, which they were not last night, they're going to have a tough time to win. I don't think this is going to be the norm. I think last night was an anomaly. And I have no doubt in my mind the Chiefs are not only going to be a playoff team, but a legitimate Super Bowl contender. Really, for me, the only concern I have with the Chiefs is that now you lose to the Chargers, the Ravens, the Bills. They're going to probably most likely not get a first-round buy in the playoffs, something that they haven't had in Patrick Holmes' time. Um, in Kansas City. And they're probably going to have to play at least one, maybe two road games in the playoffs. Which is also a first for Patrick Holmes. He's always had a bye, and he's always had home field advantage throughout the entirety of the playoffs. That is really my only, I'll say, concern going forward, is that now this loss basically guarantees the one seed's out the window. The division could be in trouble, but you're now at least going to be on the road for one Probably two, maybe even three playoff games. But still, this is a dangerous team. And I'll say this. I think Kansas City has earned the benefit of the doubt. 
They earned the benefit of the doubt. Like this, for me, the Chiefs right now are one of those teams where until they lose in the playoffs, until I actually see with my own eyes, I'm not going to believe they will. Until they aren't representing the AFC, until the Bills or the Ravens or the Chargers or the Browns beat them in the playoffs, I'm going to pick Kansas City. To me, they have earned the benefit of the doubt because that's how good Mahomes, Reed, Kelsey, Hill, their offense uh, is, and just how average the defense has to be for them to have a shot. So it's ugly. They're 2-3. and three. Last night especially was a, a, one of the worst games we'll see from this Chiefs team. But that said, I'm still confident they'll turn around. I'm not panicking. So I'm curious your thoughts here. What's your level of concern with the Chiefs? Is it time to push the panic button? Is it time to consider if they're a truly maybe will miss the playoffs? Are you with me? Are you not concerned? Everyone, let's take a deep breath. Let's calm down. Let's not overreact here. I get it's Sunday Night Football. I get it's one game. I get they're two and three. But let's realize who we're talking about here. Let's not totally go off you know, the deep ends here and overreact to a week five loss. Where are you sitting with the Chiefs and for the Bills? Are they the best team in the AFC? Where do you have Buffalo? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Plenty of ways to get involved in the show. Facebook Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter. WWSRN underscore radio. At Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. So comment on Facebook. Comment on Twitter. How concerned are you with the Chiefs? Are they seriously in danger of missing the playoffs? So get your thoughts. And we do return here on the Ryan Hickey Show. I want to stick in the AFC West. The Chiefs, I think... Well, I'm not panicking, have definitely not played some of their best football. Another team in the AFC West is playing some of their best football. I think they deserve to be, forget the playoff conversation, the Super Bowl conversation. Explain that next. It is the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We are back here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network on this Monday. We did start, in case you just missed it here, talking Bills and Chiefs. The Bills, to me, got a very important, much-needed victory for them going forward here to get confidence going to the playoffs. Josh Allen played great. The defense played even better. Huge, huge, huge win for Buffalo. With that said, though, while I'm impressed with the Bills, I'm also not panicking with the Chiefs. Like, I think we all got to take a deep breath here. Calm down. The fact that there's even questions of whether the the Chiefs are going to miss the playoffs, whether there should be concern of Kansas City even being a playoff team to me is overblown. I get they're two and three. Sure. They're in last place in the AFC West. I get it. We're also in week five. We're also talking about a Kansas City Chiefs team that has a healthy Patrick Holmes a healthy Tyreek Hill, a healthy Travis Kelsey, a healthy offensive line, and Andy Reid is the head coach. Sure, the defense has been historically bad up to this point through five games. I get it, but guess what? The defense in Kansas City, frankly, has always been bad. The, the bar that has to be raised for Kansas City to have a chance here defensively isn't very high. Just be below average. Be mediocre. And this Chiefs team is going to be a really tough out in the playoffs. This offense is still outside of last night playing really good through the first five games of the season. I'm not concerned. This is 100% a playoff team. There's really no doubt in my mind. The fact that there's even questions about it is ludicrous. It's insanity. 
I guess what we do, we like to overreact, especially when it's a primetime game, so everyone's watching. It's not kind of flushed away in the 1 o'clock window where there's so much going on that, sure, you see a game, but you're not totally locked in. There's not a lot of reaction time. When it's a standalone primetime game and everyone's watching, I get there's way more to overreact to. But look, it's the Chiefs. Let's just pump the brakes here. This team is going to be fine. This team is still a legitimate Super Bowl contender. I'm still not picking anyone else in the AFC. For me right now, I'm still have sticking with the Chiefs as my Super Bowl pick out of the AFC. Let's not panic. Let's not get crazy. It's five games. There's still plenty of time to go for them to figure it out. I think they will. I'm not panicking. Are you? Worldwide Sports Radio Network on Facebook, WWSRN underscore radio on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. So I'd love to hear your Chiefs thoughts and your Bills thoughts. Are they the best team in the AFC? Is there a team right now better than the Buffalo Bills? Again, Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. So let's stick on the AFC West here because I thought there was a team, since we're talking playoff contenders, Super Bowl contenders, I thought there was a team yesterday that made a true statement that they are, forget playoff contenders, which I think they were coming into the year. They're Super Bowl contenders, and that's the Los Angeles Chargers. This is a team that, I'll be honest, I did not pick to make the playoffs. I thought they were a fringe, borderline playoff team. I always thought they were just one year away. I didn't want to get wrapped up in the second-year QB hype. We see that sometimes where, oh, man, you know, year number two, this is going to be kind of the, the breakout year, if you will, that was supposed to be Kyler Murray last year and an MVP year. Played well through the first half and got hurt. That was kind of the, the same narrative, though, for Justin Herbert this year. Big year number two for Justin Herbert coming. This team has really got it all. I was a little wary of the hype, to be completely honest. I was actually a little nervous that when a team this hyped up coming into the season, um, I always get a little you know cautious that, okay, maybe let's not go overboard just yet. So I was not a believer in the Chargers in terms of making the playoffs this year. But I think through the first five games, it's safe to say it's not an overreaction um, or be, you know, or hyperbole, I should say. This team, though, is legitimate Super Bowl contenders. I will go there. Forget playoff contenders. This team is legitimately can come out of the AFC. And really, there's one major reason why. It's simple, but it's true. They have finally learned how to win. For the longest time, the big question for L.A. was, how would they lose this game? How would they blow it this time? Well, now the Chargers, the question is, how are they going to win it? And they've been doing so. This season, they have totally flipped the narrative on its head, and they have been finding different ways to win, where in past years, they've always found different ways to lose. And let's look. You look at this Chargers roster, right? When they were losing games, 2020, 2019, 2018, 2017, it was never for a lack of talent, right? Like the Chargers weren't making deep runs in the postseason. They weren't having, you know, some brutal losses because there was no talent on the team. They had Phillip Rivers, who was a solid quarterback for most of his career, if not all of his career, in uh, L.A. They had Mike Williams. They had Keenan Allen. They had Austin Eckler. Like those guys just didn't magically show up out of nowhere this year. Those guys have been staples on the roster, on the offense for years now. Defensively, you have Joey Bosa. You have Derwin James when he's healthy. I get that's never been, you know, uh, often. But you have talent all three levels on defense. You have talent all three levels on offense. 
It was never a talent thing. They just, whatever reason, whether it's a mentality, whether it's just, if you believe this, a curse, they never knew how to finish games. They never knew how to make the winning play, which always come back to bite them because they'd always end up blowing games late and they'd always find new ways to lose, right? I mean, that was always the thing with the Chargers. How are they going to lose this week? It was usually sometimes maybe the offense not being able to put together too many drives to get in the end zone to either tie or win the game. Then it was the defense. Okay, the offense scores. Guess what? Then the defense can't get a stop. The other team goes down the field, and you blow it there defensively because you're unable to get the one stop you need. You have field goal kickers, right? <laughs> Miss field goals where, hey, the offense does their job. They get a field goal range. Kicker doesn't come up. And you had bad coaching decisions. Anthony Lynn would make some of the most head-scratching, whether it's clock management, whether it's play-calling decisions. And you would just be sitting there saying, what the hell is this team doing? So it was everything that's always been an issue for the Chargers, right? Whether it's offensively, defensively, special teams, or head coaching. They would always find new and different ways to lose games. That was who the Chargers were. The past two years, 2019 and 2020, when you look at their record in one-score games, it was 7-16. and 7-16. and 16. Anytime the game was close for the most part, it's not going LA's way. But this year, 2021, has been the total opposite of that. And I thought yesterday was the perfect encapsulation of that. And you had an all-time classic against the Browns, 47-42, in which they held on. And it's not even that they won the game against a really good AFC team. To me, it's how they won. That's more impressive than I'm buying into having them be legitimate Super Bowl contenders. Because despite trailing basically almost the entirety of the game, right? They took a 7-3 lead early in the second quarter. After that, it was Cleveland, Cleveland, Cleveland winning the entire game. But the Chargers didn't get down. And whether it was offensively or defensively, they made the clutch plays when they had to. Which how often, again, are we saying that when it comes to the Chargers? Clutch and Chargers do not go together before this year. This year, that is the case, though. That is absolutely the case. Now, it helps when, you know what? So far through the first five games, Justin Herbert is living up to that MVP hype, that big explosion in year number two, because he has been absolutely phenomenal this season. And he did so again yesterday. Threw for 398 yards, so just shy of four bills throwing the ball, totaled five touchdowns, and more importantly, no interceptions, no turnovers. And this was a guy coming out of the second half that was lighting up the Browns defense and scoring at will. The Chargers scored five touchdowns in the second half, and they needed all of them. But Herbert, especially when, when the game was you know, on the line, in the second half when you needed touchdowns, when you needed scoring plays and clutch scoring plays, Justin Herbert was there time and time and time again. So if you take away the last possession of the game where they just took a kneel down to ice it after the defense got the stop, the Chargers scored on their final four possessions to win the game. Scored touchdowns on their final four possessions, including every time they touched the ball in the fourth quarter. Guess what it ended up being? A touchdown. Like, when do we ever talk about the Chargers making clutch plays like that where the offense was so dynamic so unstoppable that in the biggest points of the game, where they are constantly scoring, getting down, scoring, getting down, scoring, getting down, they continue to come back, showed resiliency, and would come back stronger. 
I'm so impressed by this Chargers team so far because, again, they're flipping the entire narrative on its head. And they, in the span of a year, have gone from finding new ways to lose to now finding new ways to win. So offensively, they have continued so far this year, not just in this game against the Chiefs, against the Washington football team, even last week against the Raiders on Monday night, finding new ways to win offensively. And on the flip side, it's going to be weird to say, but the defense played really well down the stretch. I know they gave up 42 points. So again, it's really hard to sit here and tell you, a defense that played, you know, gave up 42 points, played well. But again, in the clutch moments, when the Chargers needed their defense to step up in the big moments the most, they did. We never say that. And this year, we are. You're down 42 to 41, right? Late in the game, what happens? Boom, Chargers get a three and out. They give the offense the ball back at 2-11 left. As we know, that means touchdown time for Justin Herbert. You score a touchdown, uh, Browns get the ball back, minute 31 left, another stop to seal the game. So despite getting torched all game long by the Browns offense, by Baker Mayfield, by the run game, they got two stops in a row. The two biggest drives of the game for Cleveland, LA won. They got off the field on fourth down. Defensively, they made the stops. Again, even when special teams-wise, the Chargers tried to blow it. Because you had Tristan Vizcaino miss an extra point that was supposed to tie the game at 42-42 late in the game. The Chargers were still able to overcome that. And this is the team last year, two years ago, they are losing this game every single time. And losing it in different ways. Not this year. Not yesterday. When was the last time, again, we have talked about the Chargers coming up clutch, making the winning play, even overcoming some negativity where the defense has gotten torched for basically almost the entire game for three and a half quarters. The offense, they've they played really well, but you had special teams let you down where you score the game-tying touchdown. The game-tying um, extra point is missed, and that could have just deflated the entire team. Defense got the stop. Offense converted. Defense got another stop. Game over. That's why I'm buying into the Chargers as Super Bowl contenders. It was never a talent thing for L.A. It was never that they just didn't have the players to do so. They've had the players. They never knew how to make the winning play. And guess what? Winning, as we've seen, is contagious. Now, right now, it is spreading all through the Chargers locker room. But again, it's not just yesterday. Right? Sometimes you can get a little carried away with one game and you can try to extrapolate that through the whole season. Oh, they made the clutch plays this game, so that means they'll make the clutch plays through the rest of the season. Not ever the case. Sometimes you get one good game and you can't replicate that. So far, though, through the first five games of the 2021 season, the Chargers have been making the winning plays almost every week. Credit to the Cowboys. They made more plays in week two. They got that big win, walk-off field goal. Other than that, the Washington football game... You had the defense and the offense both making some clutch plays. You had the Chiefs game. Defensively getting a stop. Offensively making huge, huge fourth down conversions. Being aggressive on offense. Making the winning play. Justin Herbert throwing you know, the game-winning touchdown under a minute left. They made excuse me, the clutch plays offensively and defensively to go into Arrowhead and get a massive victory. And then even last week. Jump out to a 21-0 lead over the Raiders on Monday Night Football. Place is packed 
with Raiders fans. All of a sudden, now it's 2014. Here comes Las Vegas making a comeback. Defense makes a play. Offense scores a touchdown and put the game away. They continue to step up in the big moments and make the winning play. They've always had the talent. L.A. did. Now you have a superstar quarterback in Justin Herbert. You have an aggressive, really good head coach in Brandon Staley. And guess what? Now the wins are trickling in. This mean this is not an accident. This is not a fluke. The Chargers are legitimate. Forget playoff contenders. They are legitimate Super Bowl contenders. When you're talking about the best in the AFC, the Bills, the Browns, the Chiefs, right? Those are the kind of the three teams we always kind of thought going into the year. Those would be the biggest playoff contenders to go to the Super Bowl. The Chargers are in that conversation. They're probably ahead of the Chiefs right now. But the Chargers are absolutely in the Super Bowl conversation going forward, and they will be the rest of the year. Not just in Week 5, the rest of the season. We will be lumping in the Chargers with every other team we're talking about when it comes to Super Bowl expectations coming out of the AFC. I'm curious your thoughts. I'm a believer in the Chargers. Are you? Do you think they're true Super Bowl contenders? Worldwide Sports on Eric on Facebook is where you can type us in. If you're watching the live stream, comment right there. Nice and simple. We're on Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show. On Twitter as well as where you can tweet us. And check out the live stream on both of those Twitter accounts as well. Comment right there. Um, not on Periscope, I guess on Facebook, uh, on Twitter broadcast live. So comment section like normal. Tweet there. You get your thoughts on the show. We'll get your, uh, get your comments read on air. And we do return here on the Ryan Hickey Show. It's quick hits. A lot to bounce around with, including, even though it comes in a loss, still very impressed with the Bengals. We'll dive into uh, some more NFL storylines around week number five of the NFL when the Ryan Hickey Show does return right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in to the Ryan Hickey Show with it on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. 15 minutes from now, we'll dive into the two biggest games in college football from week number six over the weekend. Alabama A&M, Penn State, Iowa. A lot to get into there. But before we do that, we got a bounce around the NFL. A lot happened in week number five that we didn't touch on so far. So let's do so in a second. I always love every single Monday. Quick hits. Let's start with the Cincinnati Bengals. Because even though they lost 25-22, in which no kicker seemed like wanted to win that game, five straight field goal misses at one point for Mason Crosby drills the eventual game winner. I come away from this game thinking the Bengals are legitimate playoff contenders. I don't know about you, had no real thought of that being a possibility, anywhere near possibility. I went into year three, to be honest, of Zach Taylor, thought this was it. Thought he was a lame duck, thought he was going to be a guy that was going to get fired after the year, and I was going to wait for the next head coach to come in and really kind of give Joe Burrow a shot here. But year three, Zach Taylor has done a tremendous job to where this team was super competitive. Where you look around the AFC, you know, outside of the top four or five teams there, I think there's still a real toss-up for spots six and seven in the wild card. I think the Bengals are right in there. They are right there, in part, because this connection so far between Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase 
is unbelievable. Yesterday, we just the latest story of it. Six catches for Lamar, uh, Jamar Chase. 159 yards and a touchdown. Put himself in, in the elite category of rookie NFL receivers. Because now he has five touchdowns through his first five games of his rookie career. Only two other rookie wide receivers were able to do that. Randy Moss, Calvin Ridley. Not bad uh, status to be in. Not a bad group to be in. Five touchdowns through the first five games. Only Randy Moss, Calvin Ridley, the other two rookie wide receivers to have at least five touchdowns through your first five games. And I'll be honest here, hand up, I was dead wrong. I was a guy that going into the draft, I really thought they should have went line. Panay Sewell, give Joe Burrow a shot here because you know what? You can get Jamar Chase. I know they were college buddies. They won a national title together at LSU. But if there's no time for Joe Burrow to throw, it doesn't matter how wide open Jamar Chase is, Burrow's going to be getting killed. He's already coming off an ACL injury that ended his season prematurely last year. And if you don't have time, you don't have a chance. I was legitimately worried that, you know what? Offensive line should be the move. I was worried that if you make the move for Jamar Chase, it'd be a waste. And so far, the offensive line has picked up the slack, and this connection has been deadly. Safe to say, I think I was a little wrong there in saying O-line should have been the priority over receiver. Great, great start for the Bengals. Playoff, they're in the playoff race. That is for sure something I did not expect to say five weeks into the 2021 season. How about Trey Lance? Speaking of the playoff race, because I think the 49ers are in it. But Trey Lance did make his debut yesterday in the desert going against the Cardinals. They lose 17-10. I will say about Trey Lance's debut, I think it's kind of went how we expected it to go. There was some good, some mostly bad. I think he still looked a little raw, still looked a little unsure, you know, still trying to get used to the NFL game. And for me, this just reiterates why I do think Jimmy G, when he's healthy, because they have a bye week this week, so whether it's the week after, whether it's a few weeks now, we will see Jimmy G start again for the 49ers. To me, that's almost a guarantee. I don't think this is going to be a bear situation where Amy Dalton was a starter, he got hurt, and then Justin Fields now eventually was named a starter for us this season. I don't think that's going to be the case here where Jimmy Garoppolo is never going to start again for the 49ers. I think he definitely will start this year. Now it's just, to me, it's just more of a uh, matter of when than if. Because credit to Trey Lance. It's like he played horribly. He still kind of showed you flashes of why he was worth the risk at number three. Why the, the 49ers traded all this draft capital to move up and get him. He went 15 to 29, 192 yards. He also added 89 yards on the ground, 16 carries. So he's very dynamic, right? He adds both, uh, especially a run element that is not there from the quarterback position that Jimmy Garoppolo just can't bring you. But the thing is, though, when you look at this 49ers team and how Trey Lance played, I don't think he will get up to speed very quickly. I think what we saw yesterday will be how we see Trent, if he was to play the rest of the season, how he'll play mostly. Some good, some bad. You know, maybe one game or two he'll play out of his mind. One game or two he'll play really, really, really bad. But I, that's why I think this is kind of the reason why Kyle Shanahan and the 49ers wanted to give Trey Lance a redshirt. He just looked like a guy that was still a little bit confused, still trying to get used to the NFL game. So look at the guy that was very inexperienced, not just on the NFL level, but just at the quarterback level in general. So for me, that's why I do think Jimmy Garoppolo will be back. This is a playoff team when Jimmy G is their quarterback. And I don't think Kyle Shanahan will kind of throw that down the drain. I think he owes it to the rest of the roster, who is talented enough to be in the playoff hunt, to make sure that they are in the playoff hunt. So I think this year you could start Jimmy G when he's healthy. You hope that he could stay healthy then for the rest of the season. Sit Trey Lance down, 
Have them get experience like this, but mostly learn and practice, and then have them ready to go in year number two. The only way I would say Trey Lance should start the rest of the season or maybe re get inserted back into lineup is if this team falls out of the playoff race. They are seven and I don't know, seven and nine, six and eight, six and nine with a few games to go. You're out of the playoff race. All right, then throw Trey Lance in there for the last few games, get him some experience. But for me, between now and then, I would play Jimmy G when he's healthy, play him down the stretch, and try to cash in and make this team a playoff team. Speaking of possibly being a playoff team, Denver Broncos go do lose to the Steelers yesterday, 27 to 19. For me, the Broncos are coming back down to Like to me, this is the team we expected going into the year. I get they start off 3 0, and all of a sudden expectations change, right? They're the top of the FC West, them and the Raiders both 3 0, both two surprise 3 0 teams. And I think that all of a sudden kind of changed people's expectations for the Broncos, despite the fact that their three wins are over the Jets, the Giants, and the Jaguars. Three of the worst teams in the NFL. So now I think now the last two games, whether it's a loss to the Ravens and now a loss to the Steelers, this is a team that I think shows they're not a playoff team. They got off to a nice start. They were the darling for the first three weeks. This is truly not a playoff team. I mean, there were some legitimate concerns coming out of yesterday's game. You look at the Steelers' offense and the, the success they were able to have against the Broncos' defense that was supposed to be one of the best in the NFL. That's really bad. And you the Steelers coming into this game the, through the first four games, averaging 16.8 points per game. One of the lowest points per game in all the NFL. Well, they, I mean, for lack of a better term, for Steelers standards, opened it up by scoring 27 points. And it's not that just they scored 27 points. It's the way they were able to score points. They were able to establish the run big time. What is something that the, through the first four games the Steelers weren't able to do? And then, frankly... Gave up trying to do. But for some reason, Denver Broncos said, yeah, you want to run us? Go run on us. Najee Harris ran for 122 yards. Where is this defense? The Steelers' rushing offense was dead last in the NFL. Just over 55 yards per game. They got to the point where they wouldn't even try to run the ball because it was so futile. Because there was no shot of success. And yet the Broncos defense allows them to run for 122 yards yesterday. It wasn't just the running game. The passing game. Ben Roethlisberger sacked just one time yesterday. And he averaged 10.1 yards per attempt. Again, if you go back to the Patrick Holmes Chiefs conversation we had before. Ben Roethlisberger had one of the lowest yards per attempt totals in the NFL. Averaging just over six yards per attempt. Yesterday, Patrick Holmes averages five yards per attempt. It was really bad. We saw he wasn't going deep at all. That's been Ben Roethlisberger's MO. He hasn't been able to take a deep shot. One, because his arm kind of, eh, the deep ball's okay. But for the most part, he's not mobile. The O-line doesn't give him much time in the pocket. And there's no run game, so they're one-dimensional. So defenses know the pass is coming. Defenses know the O-line is not very good. They can't protect. Ben Roethlisberger knows that. So the offense is forced to call short, quick passes to give Big Ben a chance, to get those receivers a chance, and just not have them get sacked every play. And despite that, just one sack for Denver. And again, Ben Roethlisberger averaged 10 yards per attempt, so he's pushing the ball down the field more than ever. That's a huge, huge, huge disappointment. And it's even more concerning because when you look at how this Denver team is constructed, Teddy Bridgewater is a guy that 
can be a game manager that can get you in some certain spots, not turn the ball over too frequently, and not really be the reason why you lose a game. The thing that gets you concerned is that if you need now Teddy Bridgewater to win the game with his arm, you're not going to have much success. I get the Broncos, you know, they were first and goal, chance to win the game late in the fourth quarter, four tries, they were shut down before, you know, Pittsburgh did win. So you had you were basically knocking on the door. You were, you know, a touchdown, a two-point conversion rate, so send this game to overtime, maybe pulling it out, and they were right there. Four chances, goal to go, could not get in the end zone. Just under a minute left in the fourth quarter. But again, that just to me kind of shows if you have to rely on Teddy Bridgewater to win the game with his arm, you're going to lose more games than you're going to win. That's not the recipe for success for Denver. they got to run the ball, have Teddy Bridgewater make a few plays, make a few throws. But if you're relying on Teddy to sling it and win games with his arm, you're just not going to. Broncos coming back down to earth. They are showing you the last two weeks why I was not a believer in them even when they were 3-0, why they are truly not a playoff team. The Lions, as we know, were never a playoff team. They were not coming into this season with any playoff expectations, any playoff hopes. With that said, though, I got to know, something has to have happened for Lions fans to be as cursed as they are. Like, what did they do to deserve this heartbreak on a weekly basis? I don't know if there's, you know, there's a, there used to be the curse of the Billy Go for the Cubs, and that kind of always, you know, been haunting them for 108 years. I don't know if there's something like that, where I don't know if it's a curse of the Lion, whether maybe there's a Lion that walked around Ford Field that just put on a, a big hex on the franchise. But the Lions, it's insane how they have found the craziest ways to lose. Every single week, not just this season, but in previous years, it's very Lions-like how they find new ways to lose. Very similar to the Chargers we were talking about, but the Chargers this year have finally kicked that habit and have gotten out of it. And now the Lions fans are just truly suffering. My, my honest, my sympathies and my heart goes out to Detroit Lions fans. This is just brutal, and you suffer... Another awful, awful way to lose. Now, you remember a few weeks ago, you had Justin Tucker kicking the NFL record 66-yard field goal where it hits the crossbar, goes up. Sometimes it goes, you know, in front, no good. Sometimes it goes back. This one, of course, goes back. Field goal is good. NFL record. Ravens pull one out and win a game that improbable fashion. That was brutal. That was heartbreaking. The way the Lions lost to the Vikings yesterday, I think, is even worse. Absolutely worse. So in case you missed, the Vikings are running out the clock. They're up 19 to set, or they're up, uh, what is it, 19, 13, 17, 9. I forget. Wow, I'm awful. Either way, the, the, the Vikings are up by 7. One first down, ice of the game, the Lions have no timeouts left. Third and 7, they run the ball. Alexander Madison is stripped in his own end, and the Lions recover. So you get a fumble with two minutes left. All of a sudden, now you're down by seven. The ball's at the Minnesota 20-yard line. Three plays later, the Lions score. You make the play. The Lions reverse the curse. Instead of being the ones to fumble the ball away, they get a stop. They force a fumble. They get the turnover. They score a touchdown. Not just that. They go for two and take the lead. They go for two. They get it. All of a sudden, this goes from a first down the game's over Vikings win to a fumble, touchdown, two conversion. Now the Lions are winning the game with just, what, 37 seconds left. I thought this game was over. I'll be completely honest. No timeouts left for Minnesota. 37 seconds left. This game is over. And unfortunately, not the case. 
three plays is all it took for the Vikings to get to the Lions' 36-yard line. Greg Joseph drills it with a 54-yard game winner at the gun. Again, I don't know what Lions fans did to deserve the karma that they're getting. I don't even call it karma, just the bad luck they've been getting. But to make a play, two minutes left, get the two-point conversion, go ahead. Really be un-Lions-like in making the clutch plays. So then just give it all away with 37 seconds left. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Lions fans, I am so sorry. That is brutal. Absolutely brutal. I'll give the Giants a little bit of credit here. They lose to the Cowboys 44-20. Right? Blow loss. The reason why I'm giving the Giants credit, though, is because for the most part of this game, it got out of hand a little bit late. They put up a good fight against the Cowboys when they were severely... You're talking about playing with one hand behind your back. They were playing with both hands tied behind their back and both their legs taped up. Because you, at this point, basically after halftime, the Giants were missing their starting quarterback at Daniel Jones, who was very scary. We hope he's okay. Got a concussion, was stumbling off the field. Very scary sight. They lose Daniel Jones just for the half. You lost your running back, Saquon Barkley, early on, twisted his ankle, now out maybe a week, sometimes two to four weeks. So in the game, you lose your quarterback, your running back, your number one receiver, Kenny Galladay, who was the big prize possession in the offseason. You already were without Darius Slayton and Sloan Shepard. So you're without your quarterback, your running back, your top three wide receivers, and the left tackle, Andrew Thomas, was active but didn't start and didn't play in the game. So think about that. Quarterback, running back, three receivers, left tackle. You were without six starters on the offense, and arguably six of the most important players on the offense. And they were still playing hard. The defense was giving Dak, Prescott, and, and company some fits. Again, 44-20, to 20, the score is a little bit deceiving because they got out of hand early. But the Giants were fighting. They were playing tough. I give them credit. I do. And it's finally nice to see Kadarius Toney, the rookie out of Florida, I don't say contribute, but actually like fit into the offense. 189 yards on 10 catches. I was skeptical of the Giants taking Tony because I didn't trust Jason Garrett to be creative enough to have him fit in the offense. Like That's a guy who's he's a sort of a gadget guy where you kind of got to find new creative ways to get on the ball. I think Jason Garrett was the guy to do that. So far, it's nice to see that Tony in this game, of all the other injuries, was able to step up and be, you know, be the one guy, the one shining light in this game that was really... Otherwise, muddled um, by a dark, dark, dark cloud over the Giants here. Just totally ravaged by injury. Speaking of a dark cloud, what the hell was going on with the kickers yesterday? I mean, this is just, this is crazy. An absolutely horrible day for NFL kickers. You had a record 12 extra points that were missed yesterday. Big one by Tristan Vizcaino in the Chargers-Browns game that should have tied the score up at 42 late in the fourth quarter. As we know, he misses it, gives the, the Browns one-point lead. Eventually, though, the Chargers do come back, do score, do win the game. But that was a monumental miss for Vizcaino. You had in the Packers-Bengals game five straight field goals missed by either Mason Crosby or Evan McPherson that would have either given the team the lead late in the fourth quarter or won the game in overtime. Five consecutive Misses. Insanity. It's crazy. I, maybe it should, you chalk it up to just one of those days kicking the NFL. But this extra point moving it back here is crazy. This year, the extra point has been hit 92% of the time, which sounds really high. The lowest percentage in NFL history is what I saw earlier on Twitter today. So this kind of shows the gimmies here are anything but. 
and that's messing with the confidence, and now you're seeing it kind of bleed all throughout the NFL. Kicking has been less and less consistent more than ever. It's crazy. And finally here, I want to go back to Thursday night very quickly. So we got the unfortunate news with Russell Wilson's finger injury. He'll be out four to eight weeks. He had surgery on it Friday morning, and now it's just about how quickly can he heal. The minimum is expected he'll be out to be a month. Short term, this is obviously devastating for the Seahawks, right? Because now this is a playoff team. Obviously, now they're sitting two and three. Geno Smith's going to be starting at least for the next month, possibly up to two months. Your season's in big-time trouble. Seahawks fans, I do have some optimism, though, because I think long-term, this is the best thing to happen to the Seattle. Because I don't know about you, for me, I thought this is Russell Wilson's last year. He was frustrated with the way, you know, his role in the offseason or his role in the offense and the team is he doesn't really get his voice heard. He wanted to be heard. Well, Pete Cow basically said, yeah, you're not going to do that. Nothing changed this year compared to last year when Russell Wilson voiced his frustration. So I truly thought that if things kind of ended similarly to how they did last year, Russ would finally get frustrated and truly want out and get that trade get a trade request, and be on a new team in 2022. But now this injury allows Pete Carroll to see what life was like without Russell Wilson. I don't think Pete Carroll truly knows how good he has with Russ as a quarterback, and now he'll get a rude awakening as to how much Russell Wilson covers up. This defense stinks. They can't run the ball. Russell Wilson truly, year in and year out, is the biggest reason why the Seahawks win games. Pete Carroll still thinks it's running the ball and playing good defense. He still thinks he can win games with his defense. That defense stinks. And now with Geno Smith, no offense to him, he played fine in, in his role on uh, on Thursday night. But now you don't have Geno, you know, you don't have uh, Russell Wilson back there cleaning up the mistakes for your defense. That's been very porous through the first five games, similar to last year as well. You still have a chance for Pete Cow to kind of realize, hmm, maybe it is more Russ than I thought. Maybe we truly do need Russell Wilson, and I'll do whatever it takes to keep him happy in Seattle. If he wants more power, fine. If he wants more say in the offense, a personnel and scheme, okay, we'll give it to him because I need Russ more than he needs me. We cannot allow him to go outside of the building, go to another team and win a Super Bowl. This is a great taste for a peak cow to see what life is like without Russell Wilson while also having an opportunity to fix the relationship before it gets to before he truly is gone and you have to live with your decision. This, to me, Seahawks fans that want to see Russell Wilson in Seattle, I think could be a blessing in disguise that he'll be out maybe up to two months this year. Those are just my thoughts from week number five in the NFL. We do return here on the Ryan Hickey Show. Alabama lost. Penn State lost. Even though those two teams, those two top four programs lose, I'll explain to you why in terms of their cultural playoff standing, it means nothing. We'll get to that when the Ryan Hickey Show does return right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back Welcome to the back Ryan Hickey Show. Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in to the Ryan Hickey Show. As always, the 10 o'clock hour on the Worldwide Sports Network, sponsored by LC Designs. Charcuterie boards are the perfect, are the perfect uh, boards for all occasions. So make sure your guests are happily fed with some delicious and aesthetically pleasing charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark. So check out lcdesignsnyc.com. lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. A ton of NFL notes to get into. We will circle back to the NFL conversation in a little bit here, but 
Man, what a weekend it was in college football. Highlighted by the two games of the weekend, A&M, Alabama, Iowa, and Penn State. Alabama, number one in the country, goes down. Penn State, number four in the country, goes down. Two top four teams taken out. With that said, though, it's a month and a half, two months left of the season. Neither the Alabama loss or the Penn State loss impact their college football playoff hopes one bit. Both are still alive and well. Still both have really good chances to make the college roll playoff. I'll explain well. I'll start with Penn State. They go on the road. They lose to Iowa 23-20. Despite the loss, Penn State season is all in front of them. Like they're, the, the thing is here, losing to a Big Ten West team when, the, uh, when Penn State's in the Big Ten East, this doesn't impact their chances of making the Big Ten title game at all. Because guess what? They still have to take care of business, win or lose against Iowa. They were still going to have to take care of business in the Big Ten East. You still have to beat Ohio State. You still got to beat Michigan. You still got to beat Michigan State. Then they can get their rematch with the Hawkeyes in Indianapolis in the Big Ten title game. I mean, win or lose, the East is where they're going to have to win their games and take care of business. You still have to beat the Buckeyes whether you win this game or not. Still got to beat Michigan. You still got to beat Michigan State here. Those were truly the three games that will define Penn State season, not this Iowa loss. And you know what? Watching this game on Saturday, and there's nothing that tells you that they can't run the table, that they can't beat Ohio State, Michigan, and Michigan State here in the next eight, nine weeks of the season. And the, the one caveat has to be, obviously, is that their quarterback, Sean Clifford, is back and is healthy. If not, season's over. Penn State's not going to beat Ohio State. They probably won't beat Michigan and maybe won't even beat Michigan State. But if Sean Clifford is back, and that Ohio State game's at the end of the month, they have a bye this week, they play Illinois, then they get Ohio State. So you have three weeks or so to get Sean Clifford healthy enough for whatever injury he suffered. We have no idea what it is. We have no idea of severity. But if he is back, if he is healthy for me, there is no doubt that Penn State is more than capable of running the table the rest of the way. Because let's call for what it is. That game, when he was healthy, when Sean Clifford was on the field for the first quarter and a half or so against Iowa, I mean, he carved up their defense. He carved them up. Sure, he threw two interceptions, two bad turnovers, neither which should be, um, neither which of the throws should have been made. Absolutely. Even despite turning the ball over two times, Sean Clifford in the quarter and a half he's on the field threw for 146 yards, and again, just a quarter and a half, offense scored 17 points. There was a lot of hype about this Iowa defense. This Iowa defense, let's call for what it is, when they aren't turning the ball over, is average. They rely on turnovers. They are a turnover-heavy defense is how they have their success. Because guess what? Even though they got two turnovers, they still couldn't stop Penn State's offense. This could have been, I mean, call for what it is, this could have been a bloodbath if Sean Clifford didn't get hurt. This would have been a blowout win for Penn State. You could say injuries are part of the game. I get it. But for anyone watching that game and trying to give Iowa some serious credit here or truly thinks Iowa is the better team, I'm sorry, we were not watching the same game. Injuries do happen, but when you have such a, a uh, an injury to such an important player, you can't overcome it. You want to get on James Franklin for not having a backup quarterback ready? Okay, there was some criticism there. Like, what are you going to do? How many teams are winning with their backup quarterback? I, I get AM just did with Zach Calzada fine. 
There, there you go. There's the one. There's the one thing. Georgia winning with Sutton Bennett, but they could put anyone at quarterback right now. They don't rely on the quarterback too much. There's not many teams. If, if Bryce Young gets hurt, and Alabama needs their backup quarterback to get in, they're not winning many games. They're not winning. I think a game like this on the road at number three Iowa. They're not. So if, if Sean Clifford is healthy, this offense is still really damn good. And again, we saw it here in the short time he's on the field. He had no problem going up and down the field on Iowa's potent, dominant defense. And on the flip side, Penn State's defense was all over Iowa's defense, uh, all over Iowa's offense. Even when Sean Clifford had two bad interceptions, Iowa scored just three points off of that. And the only reason why they got a field goal is because they had an interception at the eight-yard line. Iowa could not move the ball at all against Penn State's defense for basically three and a half quarters of the game. The issue was, unfortunately, when Sean Clifford goes out, the offense is unable to sustain drives, and next thing you're putting the defense on the field longer and longer and longer, and eventually they're going to get worn down. Iowa held the ball for 11 more minutes than Penn State, and again, when you had Taquan Roberson come in the back of quarter for Penn State, we saw they just could not do anything offensively. Once Clifford went out, again, midway through the second quarter, Penn State just got six first downs the rest of the game. Four of them came on one drive. So outside of the one drive where they got a field goal, they could not do anything offensively. It was three and out, three and out, three and out, four and out, three and out, three and out, four and out. They had eight three and outs when Sean Clifford went out of the game. You, you, I, I'm sorry. You can't ask your defense to constantly, every single drive, go out there and receive zero help from the offense. They were worn down, so sure. I made the one play you had to make on that big touchdown from Spencer Petras. But, I mean, look, to be honest, Penn State absolutely, to me, comes out of that game. And I think they are better than I even expected going in. If Sean Clifford is healthy, this team, I'm telling you, is a legitimate playoff where they can go on the road and beat Ohio State. They can beat Michigan and Michigan State. To me, their playoff hopes are still wide open in front of them. The path is manageable. And frankly, it's straightforward. You went out, they're in. It's very simple. You beat Ohio State, you beat Michigan, you beat Michigan State, you get a rematch with Iowa and Indianapolis, you beat them, you're in the playoff. So this loss, in theory, doesn't mean much because Penn State still controls their own destiny. That's what it's all about. Controlling your own destiny, winning the games you got to win. If Penn State wins out, they're in. They still control their fate for the cultural playoff. That's why, for me, this loss doesn't mean much. Same thing now on the flip side for Alabama. They lose to A&M. They lose, unlike Penn State, they lose a division game. Both teams are on the SEC West. The difference, though, and the reason why this loss, similar to the Penn State losing to Iowa, doesn't really mean anything for the cultural playoff in terms of Alabama, is that A&M already has two SEC losses to Arkansas and Mississippi State. So even though they have the tiebreaker over Alabama, you need Alabama to lose another game. I don't know about you. I don't really foresee that happen. Now, look, you could say, I didn't foresee A&M even making this a game, let alone pulling off the upset. Fine. Touche. But so far, Alabama, as long as they run the table, similar to Penn State, they are in. And coming out of this game, looking at Alabama, how they played, I don't want to oversimplify, but for me, this was a very un-Alabama-like game where I chalk it up to, honestly, them overlooking A&M. That's what I think this is. Because you had both the offense playing sloppily at times, the defense, you know, can torch at times. This, there wasn't, 
I'll say foundational cracks that have me seriously concerned going forward that this either offense can be exposed or defense can be exposed. This to me is like, honestly, college football, college football kids. You're supposed to have Texas A&M. That's supposed to be the biggest test to Alabama this season on the road to college station. Then you have right before this game, A&M losing to Arkansas, losing to Mississippi State, knowing you're having the backup quarterback, Zach Calzada, play for most of the year. This to me is definitely just a classic case of overlooking your opponent. Nick Saban, basically, his life's work is to make sure you don't get complacent. To me, Alabama looked complacent. Offensively, they left points on the board. You had that massive Bryce Young interception in the end zone that cost Alabama points. Kicked three field goals. So again, they were able to move the ball up and down the field for most of the game. You throw a touchdown in the, uh, in the end zone. You kick three field goals. There's a lot of points left on the board they could have capitalized on. They scored 38 points, which is crazy. But they still scored a, could have scored 45, 48, left some points on the board. And defensively, I mean, absolutely just carved up. And again, they just, I think it's one of the, those classic cases of backup quarterback, you don't take him seriously, and he was, and Zach Calzada was on. Because their best player on offense for AM, Isaiah Spiller, was bottled up. There's 46 yards on the ground. They did a great job of containing him and not letting him get loose. But you did have Zach Calzada throw for 285 yards, three touchdowns. He was picking them apart, making some good throws, making some clutch throws when he had to. Even special teams was sloppy. Right, that, that big 96-yard kickoff return was a momentum swinger, was a momentum changer. So I think you add it all up, offense, defense, special teams. This is, to me, just like the reason why college football is so unpredictable. I truly think Alabama went out there underestimating their opponent. A&M played the game of their lives, coming off two losses in a row, two heartbreaking losses, and they caught Alabama sleeping. So uh, going forward, I'm not that concerned. This almost serves as a wake-up call for Alabama and almost proves Nick Saban right. If, hey, you sleepwalk, this is what happens. You can get beat by anyone. I think this re-energizes them, kind of sharpens their focus. Going forward, I don't see Alabama losing again. I don't. The only thing this does for Alabama, the only way, again, this makes the road a little bit tougher than it is right now, is that now the SEC title game is a must-win for Alabama. If you had Alabama and Georgia both 12-0 in Atlanta, I think no matter who wins, they're both in the playoff. Now, with a one-loss Alabama, this becomes a must-win for the Crimson Tide to beat Georgia get in. That's the only thing this loss changes. They still, to me, are going to control their destiny. They still are going to win out, go to the SEC title game. Now it's just about beating Georgia. But again, similar to Penn State, you win the games in front of you, you're going in without a doubt. So that's where this loss, sure, now your margin of error is basically eliminated for both Penn State and Alabama. But as long as you win your games in front of you, you're in. It's a lock. It's a guarantee. A 12-1 Big Ten champ, Penn State, is guaranteed in. A 12-1 SEC champ, Alabama, guaranteed in. Now it's just about winning the games in front of you. I do want to quickly give Jimbo Fisher some credit. Guy that on Twitter the last few weeks was, let's say, under fire. He gets a convenient contract extension, loses to Arkansas in a fashion where they were basically dominated the whole game. You get upset by a bad Mississippi State team. Let's just say people were unhappy with Jimbo Fisher so far in these last two weeks. But he had a tremendous game plan offensively. Him and defensive coordinator, uh, coordinator Mike Elko had a tremendous game plan defensively to kind of fool Bryce Young at times. 
get some stops in the red zone. And we finally saw history. For the first time in Nick Saban's career, he loses to a former assistant. Think about that. Was 24-0 against former assistants. I thought Lane Kiffin was going to be the guy last week to kind of break that streak. Jimbo Fisher is the guy this week to break the streak. Former assistants now going against Nick Saban that are currently head coaches are now 1-24. and The goose egg is gone. And finally, hasn't been talked about too much. I, to be honest, forgot about it. But you go back to what Jimbo Fisher said at a Houston Touchdown Club, I guess, booster rally, if you will. He said back in, I think it was May, we're going to beat Nick Saban's ass when he's at Alabama. I guarantee you that. I laughed at that. A lot of people laughed at that, thinking there's no shot as long as Nick Saban's there, Jimbo Fisher and AM is going to beat Alabama. It's really hasn't been close the last few years. This been this rivalry, if you will, has been one sided, say the least. And to credit Jim Fisher, he called the shot. He did it. He pulled the Babe Ruth. We'll beat his ass before he leaves Alabama. Now he didn't say the year, but we'll give it to him because guess what? A few months after he said that, he backed up and won. Incredible. Big win for AM, big win for Iowa. With that said, this loss does nothing to derail the playoff hopes for Penn State. This loss does nothing to derail the playoff hopes for Alabama. They still control their own destiny. They still win the games in front of them. They are locks to make the playoff. That's why, look, okay, look, it's great. It's great they both lost. It's, it's awesome to say, oh, Alabama goes down, they're vulnerable. Penn State goes down, you know, big-time win for Iowa. These losses don't mean anything. Because both teams still control their own destiny. All it does is take away the margin of error. That's it. But you're going to have to win most of these games in front of you anyway to be a playoff team. Don't worry. Season, if you're a Nittany Lions fan, and I am, so maybe I'm trying to convince myself here, but it's true. You went out, you're in. Alabama, same thing. You went out, you're in. That's not the only two crazy college football games. We had an absolute instant classic in the Red River rivalry, Oklahoma, Texas. An incredible comeback by the Sooners. Do they have a quarterback coverage? We'll get to that in a few other college football notes outside of the, just those two games that we saw from week six. When we do return, we'll get to those in a second. Here's into the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in to the Ryan Hickey Show with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We talked a lot, Penn State, Alabama, both suffered their first losses of the season. But I would not categorize them as season enders, as catastrophic. Disappointing, absolutely, especially... If you're a Penn State fan, seeing how good they played to the first quarter and a half, how dominating that effort was to where, I mean, look, not hyperbole. I don't think I'm being a homer here as a Penn State fan myself. Saying that could have got ugly. I think Penn State could have blew out Iowa if Sean Clifford did not get hurt. But he did. Andrews is part of the game. Iowa comes back, wins the game. But for Penn State, for their playoff hopes, still right in front of them. Really doesn't change at all. The margin for error is limited, absolutely, but... You still have to beat Ohio State. You have to do that anyway to get to the Big Ten title games. You have a real shot to make the playoff. You got to beat Michigan. You got to beat Michigan State. You got to take care of business in your own division. So even though you lose to Iowa, 
everything is still wide open right in front of you for Penn State. They win out. They take care of business. They're a lock-in. Same thing for Alabama. You lose to A&M, an in-division opponent. But because A&M has already two losses, Penn State, uh, Alabama only has one. They have the tiebreaker. They're still going forward. As long as they went out, they take care of business, they beat Auburn, they beat Arkansas, they beat the teams on their schedule, Mississippi State, they will be fine. They'll be in. The only thing that's a guarantee now that wasn't in the past was they now have to beat Georgia. Right? There's always a thought that 12-0 Alabama, 12-0 Georgia, doesn't matter who wins, they're both in, which is probably the case. Now with one loss, Alabama going to the most likely the SEC title game 11-1, you have to win you know, you have to win that game. You have to beat Georgia. That's the only thing that changes um, for Alabama. Penn State, you're going to have to win out your games no matter what anyway. So for me, they lost big-time storylines. But in the grand scheme of things, in the true sense of what we care about, which is the playoff, who's in, who's out, this doesn't impact either team really all that much. It doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. But let's also hit on a few other storylines here in college football because it was a wacky. Week number six. It's wacky every week. This, to me, is why college football is the best. You, If you sat down on Saturday for the first time in your life to watch a true, full college football weekend, I don't see how you're not hooked going back. This is what college football is. Chaos at 12, chaos at 3.30, chaos at 4, chaos at 7.30, chaos at 10 o'clock at night. It is just up and down a full Saturday full of exhilarating games, wild finishes, crazy upsets, insane plays. It is the best. And we got the Saturday started off on an incredible note, Oklahoma-Texas Red River rivalry, one of my favorite rivalry games of, in all of college football. And look, I'll say this. Last year, the Oklahoma-Texas game was a turning point for the Sooners. Spencer Riley got benched in that game, came back, won, you know, helped lead them to a full overtime victory. And from there, from that game, Oklahoma won out the rest of their games, blew everyone out, won by almost 27 points per game. Spencer Rattler was playing some of the best football of his career after that game. That was a turning point for Oklahoma in a good way. This year, I think the Oklahoma-Texas game is a turning point for the Sooners in the same way, but different. Because now, unlike Spencer Rattler getting benched, coming back, leading the team to victory, Spencer Rattler got benched. And there is a legitimate quarterback conversation now going forward. Because Caleb Williams came in, and he gave not only an impressive spark to the season or to the game for the Sooners, he frankly saved the season for Oklahoma. I know they don't have a loss, but the way they've kind of played so far this year, they don't beat Texas. Their season might be cooked. Unlike Penn State and Alabama, who both have one loss, Sooners have one loss, but the way they've kind of scuffled against Nebraska, they played okay against West Virginia, they have really not looked good for the most part at any point this year. So they don't have the same margin of error. They don't have the same schedule that sets up for big-time wins following this Texas game. So Caleb Williams, I don't think it's hyperbole to say, came in late in the first half and saved the season of Oklahoma. And now for me, he has to be the guy going forward. We talked about a catalyst where Spencer Riley getting benched, I think, was the turning point for his season in Oklahoma season last year because he came back more motivated, more focused, and playing better than ever. Him getting benched uh, this year, again, to me, is similar, changing the tide for Oklahoma, but now different because that means now a new quarterback has to play. You cannot put Spencer Riley back in the field. I'm sorry. This team looked different. There was a different swagger, confidence about them. There's a different element to the offense that Caleb Williams brought that Spencer Riley, for whatever reason, couldn't bring this year. 
Think about it. When the when the freshman came in, Oklahoma was trailing 35 to 17. At halftime, it was 38-20. So you're down by 18 points to a Texas team that's playing really well offensively, flying around the ball defensively. And since Caleb Williams came into the game as a full-time starter, right? Because he played, you know, a play or two. He had a 66-yard touchdown run on fourth down, but it was just a special package where it wasn't the starter, just was in for one play. But since he replaced Spencer Rattler as a full-time starter in the game, Oklahoma went on a 38-13 to run to win the game. 38-13 in just about two, a little less than two and a half quarters. And the biggest thing with Williams is that he brought a downfield attack that Spencer Rattler didn't have a lot this season. Caleb Williams was pushing the ball down the field, and it was very, very, very successful. Two big-time bombs to stud receiver Marvin Williams, which... Again, I don't even know why Oklahoma wasn't featuring Marvin Williams a ton at all this year. At times, he's been MIA. Not his fault. Just ball's not going to him. Plays aren't getting called for him. And now, all of a sudden, new quarterback comes in, and all of a sudden, Marvin Williams reappears out of nowhere, and everyone remembers how freaking good this guy is. He's a stud receiver. I don't know why Spencer Rattler wasn't looking for him so far this season, but uh, Caleb Williams was, and it worked out big time. So he brought one of the best receivers Oklahoma has back into the fold. He had, like I said before, when he was still alternating with Rattler, a 66-yard touchdown. So he brings a dynamic with his legs that Spencer Rattler doesn't have. He's still athletic, Rattler is, and mobile. But Caleb Williams is truly deadly with his legs. And we kind of saw that not only with him with that 66-yard run, but also opened up the running game that struggled a lot this year. Because now with defenses having to worry about the quarterback run, it opened up holes for their running back, Kennedy Brooks, who finished with 217 yards. Two touchdowns, both in the fourth quarter. The second one coming with two seconds left to win the game. So maybe this is just coincidence. Maybe it's just happenstance. But I think there's a there's not a coincidence here when you have Caleb Williams come in and all of a sudden the defense looks a lot better than when Spencer Rather was in. Think about it. It's 38-20 to 20 at halftime. The final score was, what, 55-48. Oklahoma's defense in the second half allowed just 10 points. 10 points after getting shredded in the first half for 38. Casey Thompson at quarterback for Texas doing whatever he wants in the air. Bijan Robinson, the, the stud running back for Texas, just killing them on the ground. Just 10 points in the second half. The offense dried up for Texas. I think it's part of the spark that Caleb Williams brings. So I get it's easier for me to say I'm not in the locker room, but Lincoln Riley... Like he only has one move to make here going forward. It has to be Caleb Williams being the starter for Oklahoma going forward. He's not announced anything. He's not said anything either way. For me, it's a no-brainer. This can be absolutely the turning point for Oklahoma season. They looked in the second half of that game like a legitimate playoff contender. They looked to me like the team I picked to win a national title. This is my national title pick. So maybe I'm you know holding on a little longer to Oklahoma than most are just because I have Nothing, nothing invested. It's not like I'm a better ending, but I just hope to be right. But this finally, for the first time this season, looked like a national title contending team. The quarterback change has to be made. I think it will. Caleb Williams, QB1 now for Oklahoma. I can't wait to see how this changes their trajectory of the season going forward. One team is looking really good. One big-time team is looking really, really bad. LSU. Blown out by Kentucky, 42-21. And Kentucky did it all on the ground, basically. They gashed LSU for 330 yards. They were running all up and down the field. 
Now, I want to say this because I want to focus a lot on LSU, but I want to give Kentucky their credit. They're a good football team. Like they're, them and Georgia, just like we thought going into the season, are the only two undefeated teams we have left. They do play each other this week. Should be a lot of fun there. Those two teams, Georgia's going to win. But Kentucky is a really strong team. And you look at kind of the SEC East, especially, they should be number two behind Georgia. They're better than Florida. They've already beaten Florida. They're better than Tennessee. They're better than, obviously, Vanderbilt or South Carolina. This is going to be the number two team in the SEC East behind Georgia. A great year for Kentucky. Mark Stoops has really turned that program around and now is forming a consistent winner in the SEC. So congrats and kudos to uh, Kentucky. This is a fun team to watch. This is a physical team. This is a legitimately good football team. On the flip side, LSU should be absolutely embarrassed by this performance. Kentucky forced their will down their throat. Again, they ran the ball for 330 yards. And LSU had no answer. They just were outmanned. This is a man-up kind of game. And LSU was bullied. Bullied by Kentucky. Which most years should never, ever be the case. And now if you're Coach O, if you're looking at Coach O and his hot seat, it is boiling right now. Like, I don't think this is hyperbolic. I don't think I'm overreacting. There's a chance here Coach O doesn't make it to November. Forget getting fired in the season. He may not see November. Look at the next game, uh, next few games on their schedule. They're currently 3-3 three and three right now. Coming off of that disappointing 2020 season where everything went wrong, I, I know they, you know, a mass exodus to the NFL, a lot of injuries as well, a lot of weird COVID opt-outs, but disappointing 2020 season. Now you're 3-3, three and three, and now your next few games, Florida at home, at Ole Miss, at Alabama, home against Arkansas. Florida, Ole Miss, Alabama, Arkansas. And there's a chance they could lose all four of those games. You'd be sitting at 3-7 and seven, heading to the last you know, part of your schedule. There's a chance Coach O doesn't make it to the end of the season. Early November could be it for him. Things are getting dangerous. We saw, you know, we know kind of SEC, there's not a lot of patience. Gene Chizik, if you remember, won the 20, uh, 2011, 2010 national title with Cam Newton at quarterback. Two years later, he was fired. Things change quick here. There's not a lot of patience. You have the sitting happen to Coach O. He won a national title in 2019, out the door in 2021. It is a dangerous, dangerous time to be Coach O right now at LSU. That seat is hot. And here's a, here's a thought. I, I kind of want to finish on this here. Is it fair to throw it out there that the Big Ten this year is better than the SEC? Is the Big Ten this year better than the SEC? I think the answer is yes. I absolutely think the answer is yes because you look at the Big Ten so far. They are deep. They have five teams in the top ten. Iowa, Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State. Five teams in the top 10 for the first time in Big Ten Conference history. They had five teams in the AP poll top 10. So now, you start to look, the Big Ten, there's a real chance here they can get two teams into the playoff. Most likely, it's going to need, you're going to have to have Iowa be 12-0, go into the Big Ten title game, and whether it's a one-loss Penn State team, whether it's a one-loss Ohio State team, maybe Michigan and Michigan State, I'm not a believer that they're going to go exactly 12-0 or 11-1 to make the Big Ten title game, but you have an undefeated Iowa going against a one-loss Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, Ohio State, and you have the Big Ten East winner win. 
I think there's a legit shot that both those teams make it. Iowa has a big win over Penn State. Number four, I get, look, I understand Sean Clifford, and I just made the, you know, made the case before that Penn State would have blew at Iowa if Sean Clifford didn't get hurt. I get it. The fact is, though, they won over number four Penn State at home. Penn State dropped to number seven. Iowa goes up to number two now. So if you have a top 10 win for Iowa, and I expect Penn State to bounce back and play really well the rest of the year, whether you face Penn State, whether you face Ohio State, you're going to have a top 10 victory for the most likely because I don't think any line is going to slip that far. Even if they lose another game, I, don't, I think they'll be competitive and be around the top 10. So you're going to have a top 10 win for Iowa at home. Even if you lose to Ohio State, to Penn State, to Michigan or Michigan State, you still have a really impressive resume. We look at the chaos in college football. Alabama loses to Georgia in the SEC title game. Alabama's out. SEC's getting one team in. Oklahoma. But Caleb Williams look like a different team. But if they stumble, they really haven't had, they really haven't impressed or have a signature victory. Iowa's resume, if there's a one loss Oklahoma, one loss Iowa, Iowa's resume is stronger. So you look around, there's a real chance that for the first time, the Big Ten could get two teams in the college football playoff. Usually the only time we even think that's a possibility is with the SEC. This year, I go out on a limb and say there's a better chance the Big Ten gets two teams in the SEC to, uh, in the cultural playoff than the SEC does. This conference is legit. Now, they're going to beat up on each other, right? You have Iowa number two, Penn State, uh, Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State on the top ten. Michigan, Penn State, uh, Michigan, and Michigan State off to play each other. None of them have played each other yet. So you're going to have those teams, number six, number seven, number eight, number ten, all round robin play each other. So losses are going to come. One or two teams might fall out of the top 10, maybe even the top 15. That's kind of how the SEC works too. You have all these ranked teams at the top. They beat each other up. This is still a legitimately strong conference. Big 10, man. Absolutely legit. What a season. Never expected that to be the case. Wow. God, like this is... College football is definitely the craziest it's been in a long, long, long time, and I absolutely love it. Speaking of craziness, we don't only get craziness in college football. We got it in baseball last night. Two wacky rules are are kind of really at the forefront here of both playoff games. We'll get to that. And also, peanut butter and jelly discussion from Sunday Night Football. What's the proper ratio here for PB&J? We'll hit on that when the Ryan Show does return right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. The big story of the day in the sports world Bills blowing out the Chiefs on Sunday Night Football, 38-20. Josh Allen plays great. Bills defense locks down Patrick Holmes and this Chiefs offense. It was an incredible performance. But there's some adversity that the Bills are able to overcome that really no one's kind of talking about that makes this win even more impressive. Now, we all know that there was a big weather delay, right? I believe it was about an hour or so. Lightning in the area at halftime. Game was delayed a long time. If you didn't last to the, the, to the end of the game, I don't blame you. I think the game ended right around 1 a.m. Eastern time. So very late night out there in Kansas City. But that's not the adversity I'm talking about because both teams had to deal with that. Right, You're sitting in the locker room for an hour. 
kind of stinks when you're all hyped up from halftime, you're playing great, and now you got to sit around, get tight, you got to loosen up. It's tough. But that's not the adversity I'm talking about here. The Bills were able to overcome some halftime adversity and win because they were eating some of the worst peanut butter and jelly sandwiches I think I've ever heard of. Michelle Tafoy, a tremendous NBC reporter, sideline reporter for Sunday Night Football, did maybe her best investigative journalism she's ever done. Talking to Bill's players at halftime, she was asking them what they were doing to keep loose. How do you stay, you know, you know, energized but still not overhyped? And she was saying a lot of them were crushing some PB&Js. The big complaint, though, that there's too much peanut butter. She reportedly, well, she, in her reporting, said that the peanut butter and jelly ratio is about 70% peanut butter, 30% jelly. Which, look, we need to have a talk here to the culinary experts that work for the Buffalo Bills. Because what the hell kind of ratio are they working with? 70% peanut butter. 30% jelly. That's that's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. It's like you, you order a peanut butter sandwich and put a drop of jelly on there. Peanut butter and jelly, there's a reason why it's called peanut butter and jelly. 50% peanut butter, 50% jelly. It's really, honestly, not that hard to get the ratio correct. I don't know what you're doing. So all of a sudden, you're globbing the peanut butter on one end and barely putting some jelly on the other. The peanut butter and jelly sandwich is the perfect sandwich because it's the perfect complement of saltiness of the peanut butter, sweetness with the jelly. They balance each other out, and your throat doesn't get that dry because the jelly is there to kind of be, you know, to be a lubricant fuel for, for lesser, for, uh, to basically describe it as best I can. 70%. You are dying for these players to have their you know throat get dry and have them become dehydrated and start choking. That's awful. It has to be 50%, 50%. But not only that, the one part that was not discussed by Michelle, I think is also very important. It's not just the ratio that's important. You got to get it as close to 50-50 as possible. It's also the amount of each. Let's not be stingy here. Now, we don't know how much peanut butter, how much truly jelly there was. But the key to the perfect peanut butter and jelly sandwich here is that only having equal parts peanut butter and jelly. It's also giving you a good amount of peanut butter and a good amount of jelly. I don't want to call myself an expert, but I do have two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every single day, starting from, I guess, pre-care kindergarten now to where I am right now at 27 years old, sitting here on October 11th. Every single day, without fail. The key, though, is that you got to give yourself a ton of peanut butter and a ton of jelly. you got to fill yourself up. You're not eating bread with just a little spread of peanut butter, a little spread of jelly. That's the worst to me. So when you have a lot of bread, a little peanut butter, a little jelly. It's not like a bagel where you just put a little bit of butter on it, you know, as a layer. You need a ton of peanut butter. You got to glob it on there. You got to glob on the jelly. You got to basically put the limits of the bread and how much you can hold to the max. That should be the goal when you're making a PB&J sandwich, especially we're talking NFL players here. We're talking linemen. We're talking defensive linemen, linebackers. These guys need to eat. Giving them bread with just a little spread of peanut butter, spread of jelly, that's not going to do anything for them. You really got to glob it on there. You don't want to get it to the point where the jelly is just sloppy and all over because no one likes that. But that's where it comes. You put a lot of peanut butter, especially on the edges, kind of be a secure layer. And in the middle of the sandwich, you really put a ton of jelly on. I can't even describe the parts, but I make these sandwiches extra heavy. If it was a drink, it'd be heavy-handed. That's the way to do it. That's the way you get full from a PB&J sandwich. And that's part of the reason why PB&Js, to me, are the best creation out there. Super filling, but also you feel pretty light. You don't feel stuffed and bloated 
like you would if you have some other uh, dinners on hand. So credit to the Bills. Not only able to overcome an hour rain delay, able to overcome some horrendous peanut butter and jelly ratios. Credit. That's a big thing to overcome. Hopefully they learned the lesson. Hopefully publicly they were shamed enough to where whoever's making the sandwiches now going forward at halftime learned to lesson. And the only thing I will say here, we don't because we don't know what kind of peanut butter that was used. There is, though, a big difference. That truly is what makes or breaks a sandwich, the peanut butter used. Jif peanut butter is the only way to go. Skippy or creamy, doesn't matter. You go, I mean, not skippy, uh, chunky or, or creamy, either one. I'm mostly a creamy guy personally. You want to go chunky, that works too. I like a good change up here and there. The thing that cannot be negotiable, uh, negotiable is not something you can't go back and forth with is Jif or skippy. Skippy tastes stale to me. I, I don't understand people that love Skippy peanut butter. It tastes kind of gross. Maybe it's a generational thing where I, I do feel like a lot of people my parents' age love Skippy peanut butter because that's what they're growing up on. A lot of kids my age love Jif because that's what they were growing up on. I had both, regrettably. Skippy is gross. I'd rather go to my grave starving than have Skippy peanut butter, to be completely honest. It is it tastes stale, gross. You can instantly taste the difference. If I was on the Bills team and they gave me Skippy peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, I'd call it. Boys, I'd pull Avante Davis. I'd retire at halftime. I'm not coming out. No, thanks. Or I'd rather go starving. That's, I hope that's not the case. I hope the Bills did the right thing here. Jif. Jif is the only way to go. So credit to the Bills. They're a big-time win. And always nice to see a good peanut butter and jelly discussion get thrown out there. Best sandwich created. Glad it's getting the love that it deserves. Quickly, though, we will get some craziness in, excuse me, in Major League Baseball, I know it's, it's always kind of tough because football is always king, but there were two great, great playoff baseball games last night. The Red Sox take a 2-1 series lead over the Rays. The White Sox keep their season alive with the, with the win over the Astros. Both series continue later on today. But two rules that, to me, are just absolutely wacky, and it's classic baseball getting in their way even when they don't have to. So we'll start in the Red Sox-Rays game very quickly here. Extra innings, great game. Kevin Kiermeyer, uh, Kevin Kiermeyer smokes a double out to right field. Hits off the wall, hits off the right fielder's chest. So off the wall, boom, bounces, hits the right field in the chest. Ball goes over the wall for a ground rule double. The issue is, the controversy is, the Rays had a runner on first. He was on the move of the pitch. He would have scored if the ball stays in the park. But because the ball hit off the player's chest and goes over, considered a ground rule double. Basically, that's the rule. It is the way it is. It, it was executed properly, but the rule itself is so stupid because basically now you're rewarding a defense for, hey, you know what? You're in trouble. Throw the ball over the wall. Do whatever you got to do to put the ball out of play, and you save yourself a run. The Red Sox saved themselves a run because they were unable to score. Second, third, the Rays were two outs. They, they get out of the inning. Next inning, they had a two-run homer to walk it off in the extra innings. That changed the game in a way it shouldn't. Because you basically allowed the defense to get bailed out for making a play that really only helps them. You can't just throw the ball over the wall. I get he didn't throw it. You know, it was inadvertent. It was like he was trying to do it. But the fact that you reward the defense for not making a play, stupid. Absolutely stupid. And the same vein later on in the White Sox-Astros game, you had... The catcher, Yasmani Grandal, hit a ground to first base. Runner third. He's coming home. Throw to the plate. The issue is the throw to the plate is offline because Yasmani Grandal is basically doing a hockey deflection where he throws his arm out 
and deflects the ball, hits off his shoulder, bounces away, the run scores. He's running into the grass. He's not like, you know, they have the baseline. He is not in the baseline. He's nowhere close. He's like two feet onto the grass, running to first, basically acting like a screen. So when the ball is coming home, it drills him right in the shoulder because the ball is online. You don't expect the runner to be two feet onto the grass. Ball deflects, run scores, and all of a sudden, Dusty Baker's like, what the hell is going on here? It is wackiness. And frankly, stupid that the defense gets bailed out for having the ball hit off them and go off the wall. In a situation where the ball is in play, the Razors scoring at least one run and getting some big momentum. And then in the other way, you have basically a hockey deflection going on where it's a drive-by screen. Guy takes the ball off the shoulder, goes the other way, and all of a sudden now runs a score. I guess play, play baseball, you got to do what you got to do. And look, credit to Yasmani Grandal for kind of being smart there and, and running in a way that he kind of knew he would really alter the throw. But you got it like... Major League Baseball has to fix this. That was obvious that he was out of the baseline and was only doing so to deflect the throw in the White Sox game. And obviously, you got to have some judgment here and say, all right, the guy's rounding third for the Rays game. Sure, the ball's off the wall, so technically it's a ground will double. You have to have, there is judgment allowed to be there. So, all right, we judge that he would have scored if the ball is in place, so we'll, we'll do that. We'll put the guy at home. Baseball, man. It, listen, I love playoff baseball. Just add to some of the wackiness last night. It was a span of an hour, too. Two things I have never seen before pop up and flare up in the biggest moments of the game. Big time day today in play baseball. Four games. So even though there's some big Monday Night football tonight, which doesn't involve my Colts, I will say. Hoping for a win, not expecting. But I do think the Ravens get the win tonight at home. And it's going to be a very fun Monday for sure. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Network. We appreciate you starting your week and starting your Monday morning with us. We'll be back on Thursday to get you ready for week six of the NFL and week seven of college football. So between now and then, as always, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you soon right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio.